Good to be with you on this uh, third Sunday of Advent, uh, and to be back with you after uh, being away on staycation with my uh, dear Terry and Adriana uh, this past week. I'm not going to claim that it was the best staycation that has ever happened to any family in the city of Vancouver ever, but this did happen. I don't know if you heard what Adri said there, um, but the quote went like this. I can't even stop myself from skating because I'm so excited. <laughs> this, this was Adri's first time on skates. It was kind of a big deal. And uh, it, it did seem appropriate to share on an Advent Sunday where the theme is joy. What was the symbol again? I can't remember exactly, but I think it takes two hands. Um, it was a lovely week. Uh, we are grateful for the time and space that we had for rest in the midst of a full season. Um, speaking of vacations, has anyone ever been to Arches National Park in southern Utah? Are you ready for that segue? Not exactly, right? Um, I have not been there. I would love to go, but I, I recently came across uh, the poet Scott Cairns' account of his first trip to the high desert to hike, to look up in awe at the red stone pillars Here's some of Karen's uh, own words. I'd gone only a little way along the trail, marveling at the enormous spaces that dwarfed me, the immense arches and towers of impossibly red rock, the daunting expanse of Utah's unique pastel blue sky that seemed endless in its reach. And then I looked down. A flash of vivid color caught my eye and held it. I was startled to see the brilliant deep magenta of a cactus flower just off the trail. The cactus plant itself was unremarkable, except perhaps that it was almost completely brown, sun-cracked, wind-bent, and as far as I could guess, nibbled. The plant itself seemed more dead than alive. Still, from the tip of one scarred paddle-shaped appendage poured a marvel of brilliant color, a renewal of brilliant life. And then, having noticed that one flower, that one burst of color, my eye was thereby led to another flower just beyond the first, and then just beyond the second, yet another. As I raised my eyes to take in the foreground, I was startled to realize that these brilliant flowers dotted the landscape as far as the eye could see. They'd been there all along, but until I had seen the first, I'd been oblivious to their presence, blind to their broadcast beauty. Now, I, I wish I could show you what this really looked like with actual magenta flowers, but if Scott Cairns did take photos, he hasn't shared them online, and this is the best that Google uh, could help me with, so you'll need to use your imagination. Brilliant magenta in the place of the yellow. More importantly, however, the bigger reason that I'm sharing this story is that it's a striking picture of what we find in our Advent text. Um, feel free, at this point, even already, to turn to the Isaiah 35 in your chair Bible, and the page number will be on screen. In the middle 
of this prophecy, of his prophecy, signaling the rejuvenation of the earth, the prophet Isaiah announces this. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Cairns says it well when he writes that this image is one of substantial resurrection. That is, the very stuff of a desiccated earth awakens, quickens, blossoms in new life. Let's hear the rest of the text together. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's word. Now, it's easy to see why our spiritual tradition has linked this particular Advent text to the theme of joy. It's chock full of dramatic reversals in virtually every sphere of created existence. But before the, prom- the prophet's promise of change, before the cactus flowers bloom, before the substantial resurrection Cairns spoke of, we see images of desolation. Dried desert, parched land, wilderness, feeble hands, weak knees, blindness, deafness, an inability to walk or speak, burning sand, thirsty ground, sorrow, and sighing. Who among us can't relate on some personal level to images of dryness and paralysis, to crippling weakness, to fear and despondency, to lack of vision, to being stuck. I would guess that at least a few of us in this room, even at this present moment, feel bound to sorrow. These realities are common to both our individual and our collective experience. They're part, we know, of what it means to be human. And even though something deep inside us has a sense, however dim, that it won't always be this way, things can sometimes seem irreversible. It's tempting at times, particularly, maybe even especially, in the bleak midwinter, to give in to despair. 
to allow ourselves to get drawn into a story that claims all that's wrong with the world, both out there and within our own hearts, is not something that can be overcome. And yet, and yet, in the face of this, Advent offers both opportunity and language with which to name an alternative narrative. That evil and pain and fear and death are not and are never the last word. That regardless of how things look around us, how things feel within us, there's a deeper magic at work. That newness is not only possible, but inevitable. Let me say it another way. Advent can feel like a month-long Holy Saturday. Like you're just stuck in that liminal space between Good Friday and Easter. The question for us is what will our posture be in that place? Love how Austin Channing Brown articulated the stance Advent calls us towards. She said, though the world often feels like Saturday, silence, death, frustration, fear, though the earth often feels like Saturday, disease, hunger, pain, violence, though our hearts often feel like Saturday, heavy, embarrassed, shamed, sad, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life, in healing, in fullness. I believe in light, in joy, in peace. I believe in mercy, in second chances, in surprises. I believe in resurrection. Do you remember what the pivotal moment in Scott Cairn's story was? While he's walking through the park, he's looking up at the arches. His gaze is drawn upward. Pillars, towers of red rock, the vast pastel blue sky. What came next? I looked down. A flash of color caught his eye and held it. And then I looked down. The invitation Advent extends to us often is to look in a different direction. To see with new eyes. To embrace a fresh persistence in focusing on where life might be already bursting forth, but we haven't been paying attention. Last week, Blythe guided us beautifully toward the imagery of Isaiah, Isaiah 11. She helped us remember that God's salvation starts as a shoot growing out of a stump. The week before, Lance reminded us of Anne Lamott's incredible words that hope begins in the dark. Advent invites us to see differently, and in so doing, to find our way into an experience of God's joy. In the next few moments, I want to offer four directions for our looking in this Advent season, which I see arising from Isaiah 35. So first, look down. Verses 1 and 2 again. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. I think Isaiah calls us to look down, to bear witness to the very stuff of earth, to watch for shoots and blooms, for awakenings, for signs of life, we, of course, know that there are many scriptures that tell the people of God to rejoice. 
the Psalms. You open up the Psalms, they're full of such commands directed toward human beings. It's quite another thing to be invited to notice the rejoicing that happens within the very materiality of the cosmos. God's vision for Judah, for the world, for everything in it, including us, extends to dry places and wilderness. When Isaiah wrote down his oracle, he was speaking of a land that had been scorched by the enemy in war. And he's saying that a time was coming when it, too, would be renewed and restored along with the human family. We could say it like this. A divine glory isn't fully divine. It's not totally complete until the created order shares in it. People visit Arches National Park to see arches and pillars and sky, to go there primarily to look up. That's to be expected, and it's all well and good, but things changed for Scott Cairns when he looked down. That's when he began to see that which he had been oblivious to. I love how one writer put it. The good news of Advent is, behold, your God is coming. God has not given up on God's original purpose for creation. The intrusions and breaks that are caused by sin are met with God's judgment as the way is prepared for salvation. The God of creation is faithful and will bring all things to their rightful end. Now, some of you are naturally good at looking down in the way that we're talking about right now, noticing resurrection in often overlooked places, particularly within the stuff of earth. If that's you, thank you. Keep helping the rest of us. We need you. We need Alexia Gillespie's Instagram feed. If you're one who feels like you need reminders to look down, I wonder if you might consider where you're looking most of the time and start there. Some of us might want to follow the hashtag desert flowers on Instagram. It's just a thought. Whoever you are, whatever place you're in, may Isaiah's words give us courage to trust that God's reach extends beyond humanity and to all creation. And at the same time, our text calls us to take heart in the fact that God cares for each of us as well. It's both and. We are offered an invitation, in other words, to look in. To look in. Verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Look in. Let's consider the original context here for a moment. Why the feeble hands and weak knees? Why fearful hearts? Well, these words are being addressed to an exiled people, a people who have been pulled out of their homeland, the people of Judah. And there are real and legitimate reasons why they're afraid. At this point in history, their big enemy was Assyria, and they were a powerful enemy. Had Judah been left to its own devices, its own strength, they wouldn't stand a chance. They'd end up just like the desert and the parched places. But the God who has covenanted to renew all creation is faithful, says Isaiah, and will come to save them. 
And right there is where we find the interpretive key to this text. God is their salvation. It's God who saves. It's the promise of divine presence that strengthens hands that shake and knees that wobble. It's the same affirmation we speak out every week when we come to the table. We cannot save ourselves. We trust Christ to be our Savior and Redeemer. And by the way, did you notice the repeated occurrences of the word will in these 10 verses? No less than 26 times in the NAV. There's some assurance here. Now, we've made something of the phrase, your God will come to save you. It is God who saves, not us. This is the interpretive key, yes. But some of us might have noticed a couple of other words in there about how the, te the text has more to say about how God will come. Namely, last part of verse 4, with vengeance, with divine retribution. Now, to most of our 21st century ears, that part sounds a bit less like good news. So what's going on here? Now, for our purposes and for the time and with the time that we have this morning, let's put the words vengeance and retribution under the broader category of judgment. And let's acknowledge that God's salvation is always accompanied by judgment. And that's still good news. How so? It's worth spending a couple moments here because I think some of us aren't sure how this could be. We need to start with the nature of God. 1 John 4 puts the essence of God in a three-word phrase. God is love. Brad Jerzak put it this way. God is not love plus anything. Love is the essence of the triune nature, and every attribute of God is a facet of that one diamond or flows from that one infinite spring. Anything we say about God's holiness, justice, or wrath can only be said with reference to God's love. The holiness or justice or wrath that is not love is not God's. You with me? Here are those verses in 1 John 4. God is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice, love of God, fear of punishment are set in opposition. So if God is love, full stop, not love plus anything, then how can judgment be loving? We're helped a great deal if we look at this through the lens of a loving parent toward their child. As the writer of Hebrews does in chapter 12, my dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. If I never disciplined Adriana or corrected her, like when she is tempted to touch and exposed an illuminated light bulb, for example, which happened not too long ago, despite my efforts to stop her. If I never did that, you would have reason to question whether I am truly a loving father. 
When we read about discipline, when we read about judgment, we need to see it in terms of loving correction and wise training. So in our text, when we read of vengeance and retribution accompanying God's salvation, it's helpful to see it as restorative justice. God putting things right. God removing obstacles. God saying, don't touch that light bulb. God ensuring that nothing gets in the way of God's people returning to God. The heart is always relationship. So remember, Isaiah is writing about people who have actually been brought out of physical and economic and political slavery by God. So in that light, let me ask us a looking in kind of question. What sort of captivities are you and I experiencing? Some of us, we might be feeling the weight of economic burdens. Have you tried finding a place to live in this city that's affordable? Struggling to make rent. That short window that you thought you'd be in between jobs is growing uncomfortably long. For others, you're bogged down by relational concern. There's strain in a friendship or your marriage. You know requires attention, but you're not sure you have it in you. Or you're finding it hard to forgive someone. Maybe that someone is yourself. Um, By the way, if lack of forgiveness is at the heart of your Advent longing, I need to commend to you the film A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks. It's based on an Esquire, Esquire article written about Mr. Rogers over 20 years ago. Terry and I saw it together, and for my part, it was the closest thing to a cinematic experience of spiritual direction that I will probably ever experience. Some of us might be in emotional captivity, or we're feeling beaten up by spiritual trauma. Look in. Name the places you're feeling weak and unsteady. This is not always easy, but it's the starting point. And as we do, may we also find courage to wait and to listen for how God might be wanting to meet us and to say to our fearful hearts, lovingly yet firmly, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Where does the text take us next? Wasn't intending that to rhyme. Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. Let's pause there. I see these verses an invitation to look out, to look out, to see, to notice the widespread effects of God with us. The word then articulates this shift in the text. Then will the eyes. In our looking out, one of the things we're reminded of is that the healing of those with physical disabilities is a messianic sign. 
healing points us toward the time of salvation that is ushered in by the one who has come and who continues to come among us. In Matthew 11, our gospel text for this morning, John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he is the expected one. Remember, John the Baptist is in his own sort of, he's literally in prison at this point in time. And the shine is sort of wearing off. It's like he's wondering. The one he had pointed to, now he's questioning. Is this really the one? He sends his disciples to ask, and how does Jesus respond? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. This is a picture of shalom beyond the abstract. The fullness of God in concrete terms. As we continue to look out, what else do we see? Well, we see that God has made a way through the wilderness. A highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness or the way of wholeness. I'm struck by this thought that wholeness was designed by God to be a road we travel rather than a destination we arrive at. You get the difference? Meaning we live into it. We don't just visit it. So wholeness is a road that we travel. It's not just a place that we end up at. Now, one more thing about this little section, the last phrase of verse 8, wicked fools will not go about on it. It's translated badly in the NIV. The sense there, I love this, is actually more like, it's impossible to get lost on this road. Not even fools can get lost on it. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that is exactly the kind of word I need. Boshman, you're going to be fine. Even an idiot can do this. So, as we're looking out with holy anticipation this morning, we're traveling the highway of holy, wholeness or holiness together. It's a wilderness road, but you can't get lost on it. And we're on the brink of a new season as a community of faith. What is the way God seems to be creating for us? Hold that question with me in this Advent season and into the new year. What's the way? What is the way? Last part. But only the redeemed will walk there. Last part of nine going into 10. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Like the idea of being overtaken by joy, I give you my daughter, skating. I can't even stop myself. I see this as an invitation to look up. Look up. This last phrase reminds us that sorrow and sighing have yet to flee empty-handed. Sorrow still sweeps up so many in its flight. Refugees, children of war, those who suffer in silence for myriad reasons. 
One writer said, the promised Emmanuel already came and is surely still among us, so why on earth are we singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? Because Emmanuel's visitation among us is an unsatisfied fulfillment. Real captives and refugees suffer in the present. The earth is a burning desert. Bodies are broken. Cities are joyless and human hearts everywhere, including our own, are sighing. But with Isaiah, we insist by faith it will not always be so. The earth feels like Saturday, but I believe in resurrection. And so we look up in prayerful anticipation while we wait for God's joy to visit us in a more all-encompassing fullness. We look up to see our Lord coming again and again to save, to heal, to restore. So this Advent, may you have the grace to look down to see signs of resurrection in places that seem devoid of life. May God give you the courage to look in, to name courageously places where you feel imprisoned by fear and anxiety, and to hear spirit say, be strong, do not fear, he will come to save you. May God renew you in the ability to look out to notice all the ways God continues to create pathways through dry and barren places. And may God give us fresh capacity to look up, to lift our heads, to sing, to testify to the one who always makes a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. To look up and to say with Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Let's have a moment to pause, be still, to let perhaps something that is connected find a place in your soul, Let's be still together, and then we'll come to the table. Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, we ask for the grace to extend the trajectory of this text into our present, into our future, as we look to you in hope and expectation and joy. In the name of Christ, amen. As we come to the Lord's table, let's remember that we've been invited by the one who has come and is coming and continues to
come among us and let's together uh, remind ourselves of the wider story around this table. Let's speak together our table litany. I invite you to respond with the bold text. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator,